This Hitch to Homicide episode deals with the subject of rape and sodomy. Listener discretion is advised. From May of 1979 till June of 1980, one man murdered a minimum of 21 young men and boys in Southern California. Preying on hitchhikers, he would pick up his victims in his van, take them to a location, torture, beat, rape, and sodomize them before strangling and dumping their naked bodies along the freeway. He'd been to prison and jail, but he'd also been paroled twice. He eluded police and even kept his accomplices quiet, and he was considered at the time to be the most arch-evil person who ever existed. This is the story of Bill Bonin, the Freeway Killer, Part 1. Hey, y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Potter. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. And for our Albanian friends, media saldie, media saldie, media saldie. <laughs> I'm on pins and needles every week yeah. when you do this. <laughs> so welcome, Albania. <laughs> welcome, everyone from Albania. Yeah. yeah. Or wherever you're listening. Yeah. And wherever you are listening, be sure to like, rate, and review. That helps other people to find us. You can also join the In-Laws and Outlaws. It's our closed Facebook group. All you got to do is go to Facebook, look for H2H, In-Laws and Outlaws, answer a couple questions, you're in. Yeah, it's a great group. A lot of funny people in there, We say it every week. The same thing. We're a broken record. Everybody's (laughs) funny. It's a lot of fun. You're missing out. Go join. Yep. I am doing a two-parter. Really? Mm-hmm. This is part one this week. If you didn't listen to the beginning. Too much info? Freeway killer part one. Okay. Way too much going on. So many victims. And, you know, we always want to talk about the victims. And so I wanted to say all of their names. And there are a bunch of them. Yeah. I, there were a lot of sources that only mentioned the um, victims who he actually goes to jail for. Oh, really? I'm giving it away. Yeah. He is going to go to jail, but, um, but I just, I wanted to give them all, I wanted to say all of their names. Yeah. So yeah. it's a little bit long. We're cut it into two pieces and yeah. Okay. Before I get started, I want to thank some sources, Wikipedia, Murderpedia, Radford University Department of Psychology, World's Most Evil Killers, the LA Times, the San Francisco Examiner, the San Bernardino County Sun, the Modesto Bee, and... The Big Book of Serial Killers. My favorite. <laughs> you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. William George Bill Bonin is born on January 8th, 1947 in Willimantic, Connecticut. His parents are Robert and Alice, and Bill is the middle child of three boys. Robert Jr. is the oldest, and Paul is the youngest. All of the boys are three years apart. 
Okay. Now, it's not a happy childhood by any stretch of the imagination. Bill's father is an abusive alcoholic and a war veteran who was a compulsive gambler. We have this common theme for all these killers that they come from a really messed up. I know. Yeah. And this is a messed up family. Wow. And he's a messed up kid. And wow. he's going to grow up to be a messed up adult. Okay. Go ahead. He physically abused his wife in front of the boys. It probably comes as no surprise that he was also physically abusive to his sons. Mm. Bill's mother, Alice, is also an alcoholic. She was overbearing and she suffered from mood swings. Alice spent a lot of her time at the French Club, which was a local bingo parlor. There you go. And the neighbors took care of these three boys because they were always dirty and they never had anything Uh. to wear. And Alice didn't really cook much. Wow. I guess because she was waiting for the balls to be pulled down at the bingo parlor. (laughs) Yeah. Alice took a job at a local mill to help pay the bills because Robert is always gambling away their money. The dad's always gambling away their money. Robert even lost the family's home in a high stakes poker game. Wow. In January of 1950. And this forces them to live with Robert's maternal grandmother in Willimantic. So they've moved in with the grandparents. Okay. The boys attended St. Mary's Catholic School It's a place where teachers would complain about the boys' behavior. Mm. They always said that they were aggressive. They wouldn't pay attention. Not to mention the fact that sometimes they they just didn't show up in the first place. Really? And one time, little Bill, he rode his bike into a group of young girls. And because of that, he's sent to juvenile hall. Wow. But that experience didn't scare him straight or anything like that. Because when he's back home, he is even worse. Wow. Then in September of 1953, the oldest two boys, Robert and Bill, are sent to the Franco-American school in Lowell, Massachusetts. Wait, Franco-American? Wasn't like that spaghetti or something? (laughs) Is that Franco-American? Yeah, it is. Is it really? Yeah, (laughs) Franco-American. Go ahead. I had no idea. I I guess I was just a um, a Chef Boyardee person. Yeah, Franco-American. I loved ravioli. What was wrong with me? Yeah. Yeah. But they go to the Franco-American school in Lowell, Massachusetts, and their mother's trying to shield them from their abusive father. But this convent, that's what it was, Hmm. was known to severely punish the children who were there for even the smallest of things. So the nuns had big rulers there. They were mean to these kids. The children there were beaten severely, partially drowned in sinks filled with ice water. Oh, Oh, wait. Forced to climb the staircases over and over and placed in stressful situations. Wow. The other children would also dunk heads in toilets and threaten each other with knives. Jeez. So not such a great place to go to school. Yeah, you think? Yes. Yeah. I mean, they would beat these children and he's going to have signs of it later. Just wow. wait. Okay. Little Bill really doesn't have any friends. And while he's at the orphanage, he is physically assaulted and bullied by other kids. Mm. And none of the adults stepped in to stop it. And there was a 13-year-old boy who, according to Bill, took him to the bathroom where Bill agreed to his sexual advances. Oh, wow. Only under the condition that the older boy's hands were tied with a towel. And this was to make Bill feel safe. Okay. But he gets out of the towel and he binds and performs fellatio on Bill before attempting to rape him and forcing little Bill to orally copulate him. Wow. 
After this, Bill vowed that no one would ever do this to him again. Foreshadowing? I was just about to say, but the restraining, that's called foreshadowing. There you go. Now, while Bill and his older brother are at the Franco-American school, I can't get that out of my head now <laughs> that you've said that. I just can't get it out of my head. Uh-oh, spaghetti <laughs> Neither of his parents ever come to visit these two boys. They never show up to visit really? their children. Wow. And they don't allow Bill and his older brother, Robert Jr., to talk at all. They are separated, completely separated. Hmm. And these two will stay there until May 31st of 1955 when they go to live with his parents in a home that is owned by his father's parents, his grandparents in Mansfield, Connecticut. Okay. Now, while they live in Mansfield, Bill attends Annie Vinton Elementary School with his younger brother, Paul. Okay. And at Annie Vinton, he's known as a troublemaker <laughs> and he was a delinquent. He was always absent. He was always unkempt. And he, he was aggressive. He didn't have any friends to speak of. And he was constantly bullied by the other children because, frankly, Bill was a little bit weird. Yeah. I mean, this is a kid who's been neglected. He's been abandoned, sexually and physically beaten. I mean, how could he possibly be a normal kid? Yeah, I was just about to say the, the stuff that he's gone through already. Yeah. I mean, what do you expect? And he'll admit as an adult that he had a sexual attraction to the male teachers at his school, as well as the younger boys. And he was ashamed and didn't know what to do with all those feelings. Mm. So he just kept to himself. Okay. Now, Alice, his mother, still isn't taking care of the children, even though they're home. And the neighbors, again, would take care of the boys, giving them food after finding out that these little kids are cooking their own meals. Oh, wow. And they would bring clean clothes to the boys because they felt bad for them. Sure. And it's important to note that in between all of this moving around to the Catholic orphanage and they were living with their parents, but at times they were also put in the care of their maternal grandfather, Alice's dad, okay. a man who is a known and convicted child molester. Oh, this man is watching her children. And it he just is, keeps getting worse. I'm telling you. And he wow. is sexually abusing them. Wow. Now, when they're not being cared for by their grandfather, the oldest, Robert Jr., is taking care of both Bill and the younger son, Paul. Now, Robert Jr., the oldest, is taking the brunt of his father's beatings because he's trying to protect his mom. Right. But then he turns around and beats his younger siblings. Hmm. Bill is also sexually fondling his younger brother, Paul. And he does this for six months until little Paul tells on him. And after this, Bill's parents make him sleep in his own room. Yeah. Now, when he's back with his mother and father again, and at the age of 10, Bill is caught stealing license plates off cars and is sent to a juvenile detention center. Here, he is sexually molested and physically abused, sodomized by multiple people, wow. including his counselor. Jeez. In 1959, Bill enrolls at the middle school that is next to Coventry High School, He's failing, and he's shut himself off from the other kids. He's bullied, but that doesn't stop him from, at one point, attempting incest with an older female. It's actually his cousin. Yeah. Then in 1960, his mother, Alice, finally kicks their dad out of the house, and she gains custody of all three of her boys. But then 
she lets her husband back into their lives. They reconcile, but not before Robert gambles away whatever money the family has and he loses their home again. The whole family moves from Connecticut to California in 1961 after the foreclosure of their house. Now, Robert is offered a job in Downey, California as a machinist. And a year later in 1962, they moved to Torrance, California. And this is where Bill is going to attend high school. In Torrance, Bill attends North High School. Again, he's an outcast and he didn't have any friends and he keeps to himself. So much so that his younger brother, Paul, will later say that he had the nickname Goody Two Shoes. Really? Because even though underneath he's a sexual deviant, on the outside, he's caring. Hmm. And he's not the best looking guy. And high school can be tough. I mean, kids are mean. And he didn't like the way his face looked. I mean, who liked the way their face looked in high school? (laughs) I don't know. Give me some clear sill. I mean, I don't know about that. Yeah. Yeah. And he didn't he didn't like to smile either because he felt like he had crooked teeth. Mm. What he did like was bowling. Really? Yes. And he would bowl late at night. That's random. Yeah. And then he would miss school the next day. Okay. Or if he went bowling late at night and did go to school, he was falling asleep in class. (laughs) But bowling isn't all he's interested in. He's become obsessive over young boys. Mm. It's something that his mother notices. She sees that Bill is probably gay, Hmm. and she thinks it's something that can be cured. (laughs) Okay. Bill and his mother fought a lot about his attraction to other boys or to young men. He didn't date girls at all. And when he did ask a girl on a date, he was brutally rebuffed. And he walked away humiliated and hurt, saying that he would never allow a girl to do that to him Mm. again. So that's known as not foreshadowing because? Because he's not interested in girls. There you go. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. But this is when Bill begins to sexually molest other kids in the neighborhood. Mm. And he does this by making false promises. He says he's going to give them alcohol, and he lures them to his parents' house. Wow. Then he has a petty theft charge in 1965, and then he just drops out of high school, and his father helps him get a job. Then he becomes engaged soon after. What? His mom was the one who insisted on him getting engaged to a girl. (laughs) Okay. Her name is Linda. Okay. And Bill's mother, Alice, was really concerned about Bill's sexual preferences for men. And she thought if her son could just marry a woman, Mm -hmm. it would all magically go away. Okay. And of course, it's not. Right. And he's still sexually molesting boys in his neighborhood. Mm. So Bill can't really hold it all together. And even with the job, he's still borrowing money from his parents. So in December of 1966, Bill joins the United States Air Force. Mm. Now, at first, he's sent to Alaska to serve as a cook for four months. But then in October of 1967, he's arrested for petty theft. (laughs) But the case is dropped because Bill is going to Vietnam. No. I'm going to Vietnam. <laughs> it's this whole other place, Vietnam. <laughs> that's my that's my Forrest Gump for the Lieutenant day. Lieutenant Dan. Lieutenant Dan. 
Bill is going to be stationed in Fulai Base Camp. He's assigned to the 205th Assault Support Helicopter Unit wow. in Vietnam, where he became an aerial gunner, logging over 700 hours of patrol he went and from, combat. He went from being a cook to a gunner. He did. Jeez. He did. Wow. And being a gunner with this type of personality, is that's kind of scary. Well, the Air Force, the military seems to agree with him to a certain degree. Okay. To a certain degree. Okay. Because during the Vietnam War, Bill actually risks his life to save a fellow airman who was wounded. Wow. And because of that, he received the Good Conduct Medal. Good for him. This guy's getting a Good Conduct Medal. Yeah. But later on, he's going to claim his experiences in Vietnam made him believe that human life was overrated. Really? Bill said that he engaged in sexual relations while he's in Vietnam. And according to him, it was consensual sex with four young girls. And he also had a number of homosexual encounters and a 25-year-old female prostitute in Hong Kong. Hmm. He's keeping track. Yeah. He's also said that he sexually assaulted two soldiers under his command at gunpoint during the Tet Offensive. Wow. Yeah. Scary guy. We've given this guy a gun, turned him into a hero, yeah. and this is what he's doing behind the scenes. He's turning into a monster. Oh, he's already a monster. Well, true. That's true. After nearly two years of serving in the Air Force, Bill is honorably discharged on October 25th, 1968. He's 21. He's moving back into his mother's home, and he plans on marrying Linda, who was waiting for him back home. But when he arrived in California... Linda, who has given birth to their son, is leaving him to marry another man. Oops. And Bill would always say that his relationship with Linda was a, quote, big mistake, yeah. end quote. Big old mistake. Now, question. So they had a son. Was it his son? Yeah. Okay. Apparently. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, he did sleep with her and he was sleeping with women, young girls, right. I should say, I just, in Vietnam. I just didn't know how long he had been gone from the time... Well, I'm assuming he had a leave okay. and went home, okay. got his fiance pregnant, right. and then when he came back. Do we have a picture of this fiance? I don't, and I don't even know her last name. Okay. I'm sure she doesn't want to have yeah. any part of this. Yeah. I just want to know what kind of person would marry somebody like this. Well, I mean, she didn't know. Yeah, I know. She didn't know what kind of person he was. But if he's weird and not very yeah. attractive. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Right. Can't, I can't help you there. Gotcha. Don't know. All right. There are conflicting accounts as to whether Linda and Bill were married. A few say that they were for a short time, but while Bill was with Linda, he would tell her about a recurring dream he would have. And in this dream, Bill was sexually assaulting a faceless woman in a deserted place before discarding her corpse uh, in a shallow grave. He told her this? This is the dream wow. he says he keeps having. Wow. And Linda would later say that Bill would wake up in tears, trembling from the dream. And knowing what's coming, all I have to say about that is, wow. Yeah. Wow. Hey, the worst dream I ever had was, you know, being in my underwear at my high school locker. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the dream was supposed to be that you're like naked yeah. in front of everybody. No, I, I always had my, my tidy whities on. It, it was just one of those dreams. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. I always had the dream that I woke up and there was a test that I didn't study for. <laughs> yeah. Not that that didn't happen. It might have yeah. happened. It might have happened in real life. Okay. I don't know. All right. But Bill's finally home. He's a different man after Vietnam. 
Lots of people were different after the war in Vietnam, but he's living with his parents in Downey, California, which he hated. Mm. He hated living with his parents. He's come home from the war. He's still filled with all these hidden homosexual and pedophilic feelings. And it's all a big crescendo. This just keeps building and building. Yeah. November 17th, 1968, Bill is out driving in his mother's station wagon in Arcadia, California. It's about 9 p.m. This is when he happens upon 14-year-old Billy Jones. Bill stops and starts chatting him up. Do you need a ride home? Billy hops in the station wagon, and then Bill begins to question him. He asks him if he's gay. Now, Billy knows at this point, I've made a big mistake, and he tries to get out of the car. But Bill growls and squeezes Billy's genitals, letting him know exactly what he's expecting from this 14-year-old boy. Mm. Bill parks behind a closed shopping center. He pulls Billy from the car and he handcuffs him. Then Bill chokes him in the parking lot before telling him, I'm going to rape and murder you if you don't comply. Wow. Bill raped Billy. And as Billy pleaded for his life, he knocked him unconscious. Bill then places Billy on a park bench and said, I'll come back and kill you if you report this to the police. And when Billy gets home, his mother immediately reports it to the police. Now, nine days later, on November 26, 1968, Bill's out cruising again in his mom's station wagon. At midnight, Bill picks up 17-year-old hitchhiker John Treadwell. You need a ride? Yeah. Get in. And I should tell you, for a guy who was really socially awkward, he must have found his confidence in Vietnam because now he's pretty charming and he seems to be able to act normal around other people. Hmm. But after John is in the car, Bill starts questioning him about, quote, fags in his word. Not mine. That's his quote. Not mine. And he asks John if he's gay. And when John says no, Bill pulls out a handgun and steps on the gas and he drives to a secluded area. And it's the same thing. John is restrained. Bill rapes him at gunpoint and then hits him with a tire iron, threatening to kill him if he told, quote, the man, end quote, about the attack. Eight days later, December 4th, 1968, Bill picks up 17-year-old Alan Pruitt. He does the exact same thing. He asks him if he's gay and did he know there were homosexuals in this world? And then he speeds off the highway with him in tow and then handcuffs him. But this time, Alan is sexually assaulted inside the station wagon. Now, five weeks later, on January 1st, 1969, 12-year-old Lawrence Bretman is in Hermosa Beach walking. (sighs) Bill stops and asks him if he needs a ride. And the 12-year-old gets into the car. And when Lawrence begged for Bill to stop and let him out, Bill threatened him and pulled in and parked his car just north of the Hawthorne Boulevard and Palace Verdes North. He forced the young boy to give him oral sex, and then he robbed and raped him at gunpoint. This is a 12-year-old kid. Yeah. Again, Bill tells him he will find him and kill him if he ever reports what just happened. Let me interject just for a second. Sure. My question is... Have these other uh, victims, have they reported to the police? I mean, do they have, I mean, they've seen his face. Yes. So are they looking for him or what year is this exactly? 1968, Uh, 1969. Yeah, because any kind of homosexual activity, it probably wasn't really taken seriously at the time. And Well, 
it's not homosexual activity. It's ch- it's child abuse. I mean, he's picking. These are all kids who are underage okay. that he's picking up that, that they're hitchhiking. Okay. The problem is, you know, these kids are like, okay, this is what the car looked like. This is who, what he looked like. Right. It's California. Yeah. There's so many people yeah, there. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's just. But hang on. Okay. I'm hanging. Hang I'm hanging. <laughs> hang, you're hanging by a thread. January 12th, 1968, 9 p.m. Bill picks up 18-year-old Jesus Monje, who is hitchhiking. He asks Jesus if he's gay, and then he offers him $20 for oral sex. Now, Jesus is like, screw this, and he tries to get out of the car, but Bill punches him in the stomach and then squeezed his genitals, making Jesus submit. Then he handcuffs him and forces him to perform oral sex on him. While all this is happening, Bill says to Jesus, I'll rip your nuts off if you don't cool it. Jeez. He also sodomizes Jesus. Wow. So now police are like, we got a serial rapist on the loose. Yeah. But they have this description. And Alan Pruitt even tells police he's got olive skin. He's got medium length, long hair, long, dark hair. And then on January 28th, 1969, at 2.30 a.m., a female El Segundo police officer confronts Bill. He's attempting to pick up a 16-year-old runaway. His name is Timothy Wilson, and he's got Timothy in his car, but the 16-year-old is visibly frightened. So she gets Timothy out of the car and starts to question Bill. This is when she realizes this guy fits the profile Uh, of our serial rapist. She searches his car and finds handcuffs. Mm. And Bill has a go to pieces right there. He starts crying. He's (laughs) sobbing. He's telling her to arrest him and telling her that he wasn't responsible for his actions. Mm. Arrest me. I'm not responsible for all of this. Oh, jeez. Okay. Bill is indicted on five counts of kidnapping, four counts of sodomy, one count of oral copulation, and one count of child molestation. Mm. Each time he handcuffed or restrained the victim before raping them while torturing them by either choking them, squeezing their testicles, or in the case of John Treadwell, bludgeoning him with a tire iron. Mm. Now, Bill undergoes two psychiatric examinations. You think? Yeah. 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 What's going on in this noggin of this guy's? Yeah. Yeah. What's going on up there? And they both said he's a sexual psychopath with no control over his impulses. Mm. Uh, yeah. What was your first clue? Yeah. (laughs) Jeez. He also showed signs of depression and inappropriate emotional responses. Now, in the beginning, he denied being sexually abused as a child when they start questioning him. But then he relents and tells the doctors that he was fondled at eight and molested between the ages of nine and 12. And he admits that he molested the young boys and young men, but thought that being in Vietnam had contributed to his criminal behavior, saying that he couldn't seduce women since he got home. Really? So I guess it's like, well, I can't seduce women, so I'm going to go after young boys. Wow. Okay. Finally, the doctors and medical personnel decide that he is, quote, seriously lacking insight and responsibility. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Again, he has no insider responsibility for his crimes. He's sentenced to Atascadero State Hospital in June of 1969 as a mentally disordered sex offender who was considered amenable to treatment. Mm. Now, he's going to be examined by several neurologists, psychiatrists and psychologists. 
But what treatment he received for this damaged psyche of his is kind of unknown. Okay. But they discovered that Bill had a higher than average IQ. Oh, really? I think it was 121. Wow. Which is interesting because he didn't do well in school. And here he is. He's a smart kid. He's a smart guy. They also think he's manic depressive. And doctors also find a variety of other physical and psychological anomalies. Brain damage in the area that is thought to restrain violent impulses. Where'd the brain damage come from? Hang on. I'm hanging. Manic depressive illness and several unexplained scars on his head and buttocks. Hmm. And Bill told the doctors he can't explain the scars. And they believe they're from his repressed memories of being abused while at the Franco-American orphanage. Uh, they beat him so much he had brain damage. Wow. Jeez. How about that? That's, yeah. Okay. Bill goes to group therapy where he's aggressive toward the other patients and he refused to acknowledge his homosexuality. But he willingly participated in some of the experimental programs that they put him in while he's there. And he's generally thought of as a helpful, conscientious patient. And what he's doing is he's telling the doctors and the nurses exactly what he thinks they want to hear. Of course. Yeah. Especially if he's a smart kid. Right. I go back to that. He's a horrible student that couldn't finish high school, but he's got this IQ of 121. He's street smart. And I put in my notes, this puts him in a group of 6.4% of the population as being gifted. Mm. So he's manipulating the staff and he thinks he can get them to grant him an early release. And on June 11th, 1974, after five years, which if you're counting is only one year per rape victim. Yeah. He's given another five years of probation, and doctors deem that he's no longer a danger to the health and safety of others. But guess what? He is. One month after he's released on probation, Bill rents a place in Hollywood. He's going to join the adult gay community. But apparently he can't hang with the men of Hollywood. His social skills aren't up to par. And he slinks away and back to his parents' new home on Angel Street in Downey, California. He starts out working as a bartender, and then he takes a job as a truck driver for a delivery firm called Dependable Driveaway. But he's going to be fired a year later after he wrecked one of their trailers. Wow. So he tries his hand at college classes. And in March of 1975, he's going to go to community college and he starts picking up hitchhikers who might be potential sex partners. And he even starts dating a single mom. Okay, I'm just trying to keep all the players (laughs) in order here. So his parents just bought a new house. He moves Mm -hmm. in with them. And how Mm -hmm. how old is he at this time? He's in his mid-20s. Okay, okay. Yeah, early to mid-20s. Yeah. I'm just trying to place. Yeah, Yeah, he's not that old. Okay. But Bill is still Bill, and what's brewing in his head has never gone away. Mm. And now Bill isn't driving his mother's station wagon, but he's got himself his own car. September 1975, it's the last few days of summer vacation for 14-year-old David McVicker, and he's thumbing a ride around 7 p.m. from Garden Grove to Huntington Beach, where he lives with his parents. A car rolls up and the guy inside asks for directions. And after David tells him what he's looking for, he asks, do you want to ride? And David says, sure. Sure. David hops in the car. Quote, he was totally cool. There was nothing in the least bit strange about him, end quote. 
Bill asks David, are you gay? And David says, no. And when David asked to be dropped off early, just pull over. I'll get out. You don't need to take me all the way home. (laughs) Bill did not stop, but he sped up and pointed a gun at him Mm. saying, if you try to get out, I'll shoot you. Wow. Bill drove to a remote area, a field, and made him undress. He bound his hands and raped him. After Bill took off his shirt and wrapped it around David's head, using a tire iron to twist the shirt together, tighter and tighter. He's strangling him. Mm. And David, in his last little bit of being conscious, gasps, quote, God help, end quote. Mm. And suddenly, Bill stops choking him. And he releases him. Really? Then he masturbates into a rag and then he drives David home, engaging in casual conversation. Wow. When they pull up to David's home, Bill says, quote, you know what? You're an all right guy. I was going to kill you, but I want to come back for you and use you again. Oh, End quote. Wow. Bill even apologized for choking David. And as David is getting out of the car, Bill says, quote, we'll meet again, end quote. David walks into his home. He has a go to pieces himself. He's crying. Then he finally tells his mother, not everything, because I guess she didn't really want to know. But she went with him to the police. They called a child abuse hotline. Okay. Now, two days later, Bill tries to pick up another boy. This 15-year-old rejected Bill's offer of $35 for sex, and when the boy got out of the car, Bill tried to run him over. Mm. Bill would be arrested two months later on October 11th, 1975, for these two incidents. And based on David McVicker's testimony, Bill was convicted of lewd and lascivious conduct, and he's sent back to prison on December 31st, 1975. He's to serve between one and 15 years at the California Men's Facility in San Luis Obispo. Mm. Now, little David McVicker wouldn't recover so easily from the attack. He felt dirty and ashamed. He told only his best friend what really happened. His mother never really wanted to hear the details. And David McVicker said school no longer mattered, and he actually quit school that same year. He attended continuation high schools, but never received a diploma. And according to David, quote, sometimes I wake myself up yelling, imagine going to sleep and getting raped 10 to 12 times a night, end quote. Wow. Poor kid. Yeah. In 1977, Bill's going to go under even more psychiatric examinations. This time they say that his sexual involvement with the young boys stems from his mother's micromanaging of his life. Okay. Don't blame your mom. I mean, she wasn't the best mother. I agree, but you're not. Okay, whatever. Yeah, whatever. While Bill is in prison, he has 2,400 hours of vocational training as a machinist, and he showed significant progress in his therapy sessions. But remember, he's a master manipulator. Yep. Now, you would think someone who's been convicted of kidnapping and two counts of sodomy with a child in 1968, a diagnosed sexual predator who raped five boys and a 14-year-old seven years later, this is the kind of guy who's going to spend considerable amount of time in jail. They're not going to let him out. They do. How do they figure that that's going to be safe? He is sentenced to one to 15 years, but after serving less than three, he's out. Yon, yon. And now that Bill is out of prison, he needs to get a job. 
So he finds work as another truck driver. And on November 1st, 1978, he moves into an apartment complex at the Kingswood Village in Downey, just a mile from his parents' house. He also develops a reputation as the guy who liked young boys. And among the young boys and men, they knew that he allowed teenagers to party at his parents' house with alcohol. So that's how he would lure them in. Parents aren't home. Come on over. I'll buy the booze. And then Bill buys a van. A Ford Econo line. It's always a van. And we all know that nothing good is going to happen in that van. Help me in with this couch. <laughs> I have nightmares about Buffalo Bill. <laughs> I really do. I do. Every time I hear um, Tom Petty's American Girl. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Then through a neighbor and the parties that this neighbor throws and Bill attends, his name is Everett Scott Fraser. Bill meets 21-year-old Vernon Butts. He's a part-time magician and a porcelain factory worker. Can't make that ah, up. There's a combination. Can't make it up. What do you do for a living? Well, I'm a magician. I'm a part-time magician and a porcelain <laughs> factory worker. Okay. Vernon was a troubled soul. He was shy and easily led by others. Vernon had attempted suicide three times before uh. he ever even meets Bill. Vernon had an obsession with witchcraft mm. and death. Wow. Vernon loves horror fiction, and he liked cosplay. He liked to dress up as... Darth Vader. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. Now, he's a little different. His apartment was filled with fake spiders, and he kept two coffins in his apartment. One he used as a phone booth, (laughs) and the other was a coffee table, as well as a place for him to have sex with his girlfriend. So, just another normal guy. Yeah, he's having sex with his girlfriend in a coffin. Well, the fact that he has a girlfriend really shocks me. Well, she's a self-proclaimed witch. Of course she is. And Vernon attended pagan religious ritual events and explored graveyards with her. Wow. And Vernon thought his apartment was haunted. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Told you, I can't make this stuff up. Jeez. When Vernon loses his job as a magic store clerk at Knott's Berry Farm, he does so because he hasn't had a shower in weeks, <laughs> and he keeps acting really strange. Wow. He is still performing magic acts at schools and privately for small groups and children's parties. Okay, okay. This guy is a drifter who's been in and out of jail, has a fascination with sadistic homosexual activity, and when he meets Bill, he says that he had a, quote, kind of hypnotic control over him, end quote. Mm. So he's very malleable, right? you know, and Bill is a master manipulator. Yeah. So he just takes over and then Vernon feels like Bill's got a, quote, kind of hypnotic control. Wow. Now, both Vernon and Bill are living outwardly heterosexual lives. But behind closed doors, Vernon and Bill are living in a homosexual relationship. Okay. These two are lovers. Mm. They both did role-playing. They both played the game of Dungeons and Dragons. It was a big event. It was always organized and advertised each week to be played at Vernon's apartment. And Vernon even had murder mystery parties at his house because Vernon was obsessed with death. Right. Now, after these two become lovers, Bill suggests to Vernon that they rape and murder a teenage hitchhiker. Really? Yeah. Wow. Like, is that like pillow talk? Just laying in yeah. bed after sex? Hey. Hey, I got an idea. Why don't we rape and murder a teenage hitchhiker? Jeez. And Vernon says, okay, let's do it. Wow. 
He was excited to watch Bill abuse and torture a victim in the rear of his van while Vernon drove the van. A van that's been fixed so that all of the internal door handles on the passenger side and in the back of the van are missing. They're gone. They're all removed. Bill kept a bunch of tools and equipment in the van, including knives, ligatures, and a variety of regular household tools. Now, during this time, Bill also meets 18-year-old Gregory Matthews Miley. Greg is an illiterate guy from Texas and a high school dropout who has an IQ of 56. Greg's mother neglected him, and he sort of thought of Bill as a father figure. But behind the scenes, Greg is exchanging trips to the movie theater, purchases of new clothes, and dinner at restaurants for sex. Mm. Now, before I begin with these heinous murders, I'm going to go through more than just the murders that Bill will ultimately be charged with, because I think we need to say these young men's names. Yeah, It's a lot. If you want to tap out now, I completely understand, because we're going to talk about some pretty heinous stuff. You have been warned. May 28, 1979, Agora, California. Thomas Lundgren, just 13 years old, leaves home at around 10.50 that morning. It would be the last time he'd be seen alive. His little battered body was discovered the same day. He was clothed except for his underwear and pants, which were missing. Those items are going to be found later in a field nearby, along with his genitals, Mm. which had been severed. Wow. Coincidentally, this was around the same time that Robin Samso is murdered by Rodney Alcala, the dating game killer. And they're looking at Rodney as the murderer of Thomas. That was the very first episode we did. It is. It is. And they're looking at Rodney as the murderer of Thomas. And why might that be? Well, when he left that morning, he told his family that he was going to be photographed on his skateboard Mm, by a man. And remember, that's how Rodney would like lure people in. But he really only liked women. So not very many boys in Rodney Alcala's list of victims. Now, Bill has denied he had anything to do with this murder. But there are those who still believe this was his work because the little boy had been bludgeoned with a tire jack handle in the face, in the head. He'd been stabbed in the chest and stomach, and he was strangled. And it's thought that Bill was trying to, quote, kill his homosexual attraction to Thomas. Mm. Two months later, August 4th, 1979, Bill is driving from Silverado Canyon to a drive-in movie theater to spend time with Vernon. And he suggests to Vernon that they rape and murder a teenage hitchhiker. First, Bill offers a boy named Mark Shelton $400 for sexual services. Mark is walking to a movie theater near Beach Boulevard. Bill masturbated Mark, and then Vernon began squeezing the boy's genitals, causing Mark to scream. Bill drove into the Cajun Pass in San Bernardino County, and Vernon showed Mark some magic tricks, and then he too orally copulated Mark. Then they go to an abandoned gas station, and Bill parks the car, and he rapes 17-year-old Mark. And the kid is afraid and resisting, so Bill beat him until he loses consciousness. Mm. Then he strangles him twice with Vernon's help and violated Mark's body with foreign objects, (sighs) including a stick, which sent this poor child into a fatal state of shock. Then Bill and Vernon discarded Mark's body on a gravel road in Cajun Pass in San Bernardino County. Mm. 
The very next day, August 5th, Marcus grabs a 17-year-old West German tourist who's been in the United States for several months. He's hitchhiking across America, and he's thumbing a ride on the PCH, the Pacific Coast Highway. It's sometime between 6 p.m. and midnight. Bill pulls up to him in his Ford Econo line. He offers him a ride. According to Bill, these two had consensual sex. Marcus agreed to be bound with lengths of cord and ignition wire. Bill then retrieved a buck knife and started threatening Marcus. Mm-hmm. All the while, Vernon is driving to Bill's house. And when they arrive, Marcus is again sodomized and beaten. And when Bill squeezed his genitals during the rape, Marcus breaks loose and punches Vernon. Bill flies into a rage and he reportedly stabbed Marcus. Mm-hmm. Marcus was partially strangled, and when they found him, he had been stabbed 77 times. Oh, my gosh. Again, they think he's trying to kill his homosexuality. Okay. Then Marcus's nude and brutally abused body was discarded in Malibu Creek. His body was found the next day at 6.30 a.m. Wow. Bill is picked up by officers and detained for molesting a 17-year-old boy who's hitchhiking in the coastal town of Dana Point. Now, this is a violation of his parole, and Bill should be heading back to prison. But there's a records mix-up, a clerical error Uh. that happens before Bill's scheduled court date. And Bill Bonin is allowed to walk right out of the jail before his trial and is released from detention on August 13th, 1979. Wow. All because of a clerical error. So many more boys and young men and boys like Mark and Marcus are going to die. Yeah, because of a clerical error. Because of a clerical error. On August 13th, 1979, neighbor Everett Scott Fraser picks up Bill from the Orange County Jail. It's during this ride home that Bill tells his friend, quote, no one's going to testify again. This is never going to happen to me again, end quote. Mm -hmm. Bill will never appear at his appointed court time, and he's now returning to his parents' home where most of the neighbors still know he's a pedophile who liked to lure children into the home. He would tell them they could come in and watch porn this time, not just drink. Come watch porn and drink. And also in the house at this point is Bill's younger brother, Paul. And later, neighbors are going to say that they could actually hear crying in the house when Bill would have young boys in there. But Bill's mom and his brother, Paul, are both going to say, we never heard a thing. Do you think they were protecting him or they just really didn't hear anything because he was good at hiding? He might have been good. They might have been protecting him. I mean, who knows? I mean, his mom is not the greatest reliable source of anything, I don't think. Sure. August 20th, 1979, Bill picks up 18-year-old Robert Wyrostek, who was cycling to a grocery store in Newport Beach. Bill allegedly offers him $50 to perform acts of oral copulation. When he gets him in the van, Bill binds and rapes Robert at knife point before driving to Vernon's place. While driving on Interstate 10, Vernon orally copulates this young boy before repeatedly striking him and taking Bill's place behind the wheel, who then tortured Robert by bending his fingers and squeezing his genitals before bludgeoning him with a tire iron and strangling him with his T-shirt using the tire iron. Robert's body will be found on September 27th, 1979, on the side of Interstate 10. Mm. He is picking up these young boys. 
He is doing incredibly horrible things to them, killing them and then dumping their bodies like trash. Yeah. One week after the murder of Robert on August 27, 1979, Bill and Vernon pick up 15-year-old Donald Ray Hyden of Hollywood. They pick him up on Santa Monica Boulevard at about 1 a.m. Just to get to Robert, Bill crosses two lanes in the presence of police, Mm. causing Vernon, who'd been pretending to be asleep in the back of the van, to laugh. Robert was afraid of Vernon, and Bill reassures Donald, offering him $50 for sexual services. And these two soon engage in consensual intercourse as Vernon drives the van. But when Vernon makes an accidental wrong turn, Donald gets scared and starts to scream, causing Bill to extensively beat and bind him before torturing his genitals and sodomizing him. Wow. Vernon then tells 15-year-old Donald that he'd, quote, entered the death van, and when someone enters, they don't go out alive, end quote. Bill tells Donald that he was going to strangle him with a bandana and a tire iron. Allegedly, Vernon orally copulated Donald's corpse before the pair dumped the body at a construction site near the Ventura Freeway. These guys are just evil monsters. Animals. They are animals. His body would be discovered just hours later. Donald Hyden had been bound, beaten about the face, sodomized, then stabbed in the neck and genitalia, and his skull had been bludgeoned. Mm. There was evidence that the pair had also attempted to remove his testicles and slash his throat. Donald's rectum was found bleeding and extensively distended. Mm. Now, less than two weeks later, on September 9th, 1979, Bill sees 17-year-old David Lewis Murillo of La Miranda riding his bike to a movie theater. And Bill stops and chats up David. David gets in the van and Bill offers him money for sex. And David says no, but Bill tries to fondle David and David resists, so he binds him and drives David to Vernon's place. And while Vernon is driving, Bill forces David to orally copulate him before squeezing his genitals and sodomizing him. Then Bill trades places with Vernon, who orally copulates and beats David before squeezing his genitals in frustration. Vernon is mad. He's mad because David isn't sexually excited by what is happening. Oh, my God. These two park the van at a secluded spot where David is bound, repeatedly raped by Bill and Vernon, extensively bludgeoned about the chest, neck, and skull with a tire iron, and then strangled with a ligature before his nude body was thrown out of the van and over an embankment into a bed of ivy alongside the Highway 101. Wow. His nude body will be discovered three days later on September 12th, 1979. Now, after the murder of David Murillo, Vernon started acting weird. (laughs) He hasn't already? Well, weirder than usual. At one point, he put an axe blade to a close friend's throat and said, quote, I'd like to see your blood gush out and hear your screams, end quote. Wow. And then Bill takes a little break. He won't kill anyone until on or about November 1st, 1979, when he and Vernon abducted and murdered a John Doe with brown hair. Bill said he was about 5'6 and around 18 years old. This victim was savagely beaten repeatedly by both captors, Bill and Vernon, and then they strangled him to death before his fully clothed body was discarded in an irrigation ditch alongside State Route 99 south of Bakersfield. So he's fully clothed. They didn't do anything to him? 
They they beat him and strangled him. That was it. That was they it. They just killed him. They just killed him. Oh, wow. This time. Wow. Now, during the ordeal, Bill allegedly asked the victim whether he knew why he had to die. And then he further explained why, quote, your folks paid us to find you and kill you, end quote. Oh, gee. Then Bill strangled the unknown young man before inserting an ice pick into his nostrils and his right ear. Then four weeks later, on November 30th, Bill, all on his own, abducted 17-year-old Frank Dennis Fox from Bellflower. This time, while strangling Frank, Bill had killed him while still sodomizing him. And Frank's body was found two days later alongside the Ortega Highway, five miles east of San Juan Capistrano. Mm. The body showed signs of extensive blunt force trauma to the face and head with ligature marks on the wrists and ankles, indicating Frank had been bound. No clothing or other identifying evidence was discovered at the scene. Now, because all these bodies are being dumped along various freeways, Bill Bonin gets his name as the freeway killer. So that's who the police are looking for. They call him the freeway killer. And he's all over Los Angeles and Orange County picking up these young men and boys. 10 days after the murder of Frank Fox, Bill happens upon 15-year-old John Frederick Kilpatrick from Long Beach. He offered John money for sexual services. John was just going to see some friends that day. After engaging in mutual oral copulation, John was bound and raped by Bill in the van before being transported to Bill's parents' house, where John was extensively flagellated with string until he cried Mm. and then is strangled to death with the exact same string. Then Bill tosses John's body in a remote area of Rialto. He was found on December 13th. John Kilpatrick remained known as a John Doe until August 5th of 1980, and here's why. John was a troubled kid, and his parents had recently divorced, and he was known to disappear for days at a time. So his mom hesitated to report that he was a missing kid, and his friends also mistakenly saw him at the mall. And because of all of that, it wasn't reported that he was missing until much later. So he really wasn't at the mall. They just thought they saw him. They just thought that they saw gotcha. him and he'd been picked up by Bill. Gotcha. On January 1st, 1980, Bill happens upon 16-year-old Michael Francis McDonald from Ontario near the Chino Airport. Bill says that he's going to give Michael drugs to sell. So Bill parked behind an apartment building and then tied up Michael at gunpoint. He then beat Michael into submission, forcing him to perform oral sex on Bill before being subjected to genital squeezing and rape in the van. Hmm. Michael's fully clothed body was found alongside Highway 71 on the outskirts of Chino, but his body won't be identified until March 24th of 1980. Okay. On the morning of February 3rd, 1980, Bill invited a 16-year-old boy into his parents' house to drink and engage in intercourse. When Bill left the room to go to the bathroom, he allegedly caught this boy stealing $100 from his wallet. Not a good thing to do. Furious, Bill resolved to commit a murder. So I guess what's going on in his mind is, this is how I'm going to let off steam, or I'm going to get back at this kid by murdering another kid? Yeah, I mean, it's justified in his mind. In his head, apparently. Later that evening, Bill drove from Downey to Hollywood with Greg Miley, the guy from Texas. He's got murder on his mind. And according to Greg Miley, quote, yeah, we wanted to go and pick somebody up and have sex with him. And he says, hey, 
Have you ever killed anybody? And I said, no, I never had. I'm high. I know. And we went up to Hollywood driving around the street and we saw some teen, end quote. Hmm. It was 15-year-old Charles Miranda who's standing close to the Starwood nightclub. He was hitchhiking along Santa Monica Boulevard. According to Greg, Bill and Charles engaged in consensual intercourse in the rear of the van as he drove. And before Bill whispered to Greg, quote, kids gotta die. Kids gonna, this kid's gonna die, end quote. Greg Miley replied, quote, why don't you just let the kid go, end quote. Hmm. But Bill said, quote, no, because he'll know us and he'll know the van, end quote. Jeez. Charles Miranda was then overpowered by Bill, who asked him how much money he had. And Charles said he had about $6. So Bill tells Greg to take his wallet. And then Bill beat, bound, and gagged Charles. He then told Charles how he was robbed earlier that day. And even though it wasn't fair, Charles had to be killed. Charles cries and begs for his life. Bill then began to sexually assault Charles. Greg also attempted to rape Charles, but was unable to sustain an erection. And in frustration, Greg hit Charles with various sharp objects in the van before helping Bill to beat him. Bill then strangled Charles to death with a t-shirt and a tire iron as Greg repeatedly jumped on Charles's chest. His nude corpse was dumped shortly thereafter in an alleyway along 2nd Street in Los Angeles. Now, not five minutes after these two discarded Charlie Miranda's body, Bill suggests to Miley, quote, I'm horny again. Let's go and do another one, end quote. Now, Greg Miley protested at first and said, I want to go home. But eventually he agrees to go along with Bill. And a few hours later in Huntington Beach, these two see 12-year-old James McCabe who was standing at a bus stop on the corner of Beach Boulevard and Slater Avenue. He was wanting to go to Disneyland. Now, this kid was just temporarily left alone. James had been dropped off there by his older brother, who he was staying with for the weekend, and his older brother had given James money. James was lured into Bill's van on the promise he would be driven to his intended destination of Disneyland. Wow. And Bill said... I've got weed. And according to Greg, James entered the rear of the van voluntarily, and then Bill drove to a grocery store parking lot, parking the van and getting in the back, where he began hugging and kissing the child. Then he bound James, telling him he was being kidnapped for ransom. Wow. James was terrified, and when he started yelling, Bill punched him in the stomach, mouth, and in the leg to shut him up. Greg then drove in an aimless manner for what he later described as being a, quote, very, very long distance, end quote, while he listened to James crying as Bill raped this young boy and bludgeoned him in the head with a tire iron. Bill then forced James to sleep in his arms. Mm. James woke up. Greg joined Bill in beating him into unconsciousness simply because he, quote, felt like doing so before Bill crushed James' neck with a tire iron. Bill then strangled James to death with his own T-shirt before the pair discarded the corpse alongside a dumpster at a construction site in Walnut City. James McCabe's body was discovered three days later, fully clothed, bearing several skull fractures and a bruised penis. Mm. 
After they dumped the body, Bill and Greg spent the money that they stole from James's wallet for lunch. One day after Charles Miranda and James McCabe's murder, Bill is arrested for violating the conditions of his parole. He was remanded in custody at the Orange County Jail until March 4th, but then they let him go. And 10 days later, on March 14th, Bill abducts 18-year-old Ronald Gatlin from Van Nuys. They sexually assault Ronald, and then Bill began hacking at Ronald's face with an ice pick. Ronald was beaten and sodomized and suffered several deep perforating ice pick wounds to the ear and neck before being strangled with a ligature. He also bore signs of extensive beating. The following day, his bound body was found behind an industrial building in the city of Duarte. Now, by this time, California is in a tizzy. Yeah. Parents won't let their kids outside by themselves. People are scared to death, but they are no closer to finding a killer. And one week later, on March 21st, Bill offers a ride to 14-year-old hitchhiker Glenn Normand Barker. Bill beat him and raped him with objects, then strangled him with a ligature. His neck had numerous cigarette burns Mm. made by a cigarette, and his rectum was extensively distended. At approximately 4.07 p.m. the same day, 15-year-old Russell Dwayne Rowe was on his way to an after-school job. He called his employer to say he's running late. Russell intended on hitchhiking a ride to his job at a fast-food restaurant, and then he met Bill Bonin. Russell was bound, beaten, and strangled to death after an estimated eight hours of captivity. Then Bill discarded his bloody body alongside Glenn Barker's in Cleveland National Forest, close to the Ortega Highway. Both nude bodies were found on March 23rd, and both bore evidence of extensive beating and ligature marks on their wrists, ankles, and neck. But this time, there are also green carpet fibers Uh on both of their bodies. He finally stumbled. Still, Bill was very excited that he had raped, murdered, and dumped not one, but two boys who didn't know each other together. This is how his sick mind is working. Yeah, there's just no rationale to it. Yeah. Yeah. One Friday evening in March 1980, Bill offered 17-year-old William Ray Pugh a ride home as the pair left Everett Scott Fraser's residence. Remember him, Everett Scott Fraser? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is the guy who had all the parties and hooked him up with Vernon Butts in the first place. Well, within minutes of accepting this ride, Bill asked William if he would like to engage in sex with him. And William will later say that he panicked. And after sitting in silence for several minutes, he tried to get out of the van. Once Bill had slowed down at a stoplight, like he wants to get out of the van at the, he's rolling to 35, he's going to jump out. Right. That's when Bill grabbed William by the collar. He dragged him into the passenger seat of the van. And according to William, Bill entered an irritable state before confiding in him that he enjoyed abducting young male hitchhikers on Fridays and Saturdays. So he had time to take his girlfriend roller skating on Sundays, adding that he restrained and abused these boys before strangling them to death with their own T-shirts. Wow. This is all done in a very matter-of-fact tone. Yeah. Bill then informs him, quote, 
If you want to kill somebody, you should make a plan and find a place to dump the body before you even pick a victim. I can't believe he's, he's just exposing everything. He's just giving it up. Yeah. Bill further explained that he'd spared William a sexual assault because the two of them had been seen leaving Fraser's party together. And William was driven home and immediately ran from the van when it pulled over. And Bill allows him out. There's just no rhyme or reason to anything no, that he does. No. Wow. But William is actually going to join Bill. And on March 25th, 1980, Bill and William abducted 15-year-old runaway Harry Todd Turner from a Los Angeles street. Wow. Harry had run away from a boy's home in the desert community of Lancaster four days prior to his encounter with Bill and William. William's later going to say that he and Bill lured little Harry to the van with an offer of $20 for sex. After binding and sodomizing Harry, Bill bit into Harry's penis until it tore and bled. Bill then told William to, quote, beat him up, end quote. And after William had bludgeoned and beat Harry about the head and body for several minutes, Bill strangled Harry to death with his own T-shirt and a tire iron before discarding his body at the rear delivery door of a Los Angeles business. Mm Harry's genitals were mutilated and he had eight skull fractures inflicted by a blunt instrument, the tire iron. Wow. Now, here's what you're not going to believe. On April 10th, Bill Bonin was discharged from parole following his March 4th, 1980 release. So all of California is looking for this killer and he's he's not even being picked up. Wow. In fact, he's being discharged from parole. No more parole officers. Don't they have records on this guy? I mean, come on. They don't know it's him. Wow. On the same day, Bill sees 16-year-old Bellflower resident Stephen John Wood walking to school. Stephen's older brother had introduced him to Bill, so he willingly got into Bill's van. His nude, hog-tied, and extensively beaten body was discarded in a Long Beach alleyway beside a dumpster with his head resting against a nearby bench close to the Pacific Coast Highway. Stephen Wood's autopsy revealed he had been killed by ligature strangulation, but Bill had a job interview after he murdered Stephen Wood. So he drove to his interview and then ate some pizza. Mm. He needed to wait until it was dusk to safely discard the body. So he's driving around in his van at a job interview, and he's got a dead body in the van. Wow. Four weeks later, on April 29th, Bill meets 19-year-old supermarket employee Darren Kendrick while parked at a Stanton supermarket. Bill lured Darren into his van on the pretext of selling him drugs. Bill then drove to Vernon's apartment in Lakewood, where the three of them began listening to music as they sat on the couch. And when Bill asked Darren if he was gay, Darren wanted to run, and he attempted to flee, But Bill and Vernon overpowered him, and then they tied him up. Mm. Vernon then sodomized Darren while Bill raised the volume of Vernon's sound system to cover the screams. Vernon then held Darren's mouth open while Bill poured chloral hydrate down his throat, causing Kendrick to sustain caustic chemical burns to his mouth, chin, stomach, and chest. And Darren who had fiercely fought these attackers, including biting these two guys, he then halted his resistance because he's vomiting onto the apartment floor. Wow. And he's complaining, I'm dizzy, noting that Darren is losing consciousness and he's whimpering. Bill then achieves orgasm. 
He then strangled Darren as Vernon drove an ice pick into Darren's ear, causing a fatal wound to the cervical spinal cord. They are just torturing these men, these young boys. Darren's body was discarded behind a warehouse close to the Artesia freeway with the ice pick still stuck in his head. Mm. On May 12th, 1980, Bill abducted and murdered Lawrence Sharp, a guy who he later stated he had decided to kill when he woke the next morning and was, quote, tired of having him around, end quote. (laughs) The body of the 17-year-old was discarded behind a Westminster gas station. Lawrence is found on May 18th. His autopsy revealed that in addition to being bound and sodomized, he had been extensively beaten about the face and body then strangled with a ligature. So it's always the same MO. He does exactly the same thing with every single victim. Wow. And this is what he had to say. Quote, the kids started fading out, just kind of whimpering. I don't like raping some limp piece of meat. It's no fun if they don't let me know how it feels. Guess we gave him too much of the stuff. Next time I figured I wouldn't use as much. Anyways, I'd gotten my rocks off and the kid was getting boring. So no fun anymore. So I strangled him. Wow. Yeah. He's not even an animal. He's just, I don't even know what to call him. One week later on May 19th, Bill asks Vernon to go with him on a killing. This time Vernon says no. So operating on his own, Bill picks up a 14-year-old Southgate boy named Sean King from a bus stop in Downey. Sean was strangled to death before his body was discarded in Live Oak Canyon. Bill goes back to Vernon's and brags about the murder. By early 1980, the murders committed by Bill and his accomplices were receiving considerable media attention and a reward totaling $50,000 for information leading to the conviction of this killer had been offered by leading gay rights activists. Now, Bill's following the news media reports pertaining to his own crimes, and he collected newspaper clippings documenting his own manhunt. Mm. He would often tune into the radio and the television coverage of the murders, along with Vernon, Greg, and Billy Pugh. And then, May 1980, Billy Pugh is arrested for auto theft and is housed at the Los Padrinos Juvenile Courthouse. On May 28th, he overhears the details of the ongoing murders on a local radio broadcast, and then he confides to a counselor that the guy who's doing these horrible things, Uh it's Bill Bonin. Busted. The counselor reports Billy's suspicions to the police, who in turn relay the information to the LAPD homicide sergeant John St. John. And upon hearing this confidential tip from the counselor, St. John comes in to chat with Billy the following day. Got a few questions for you, Bill. I got a few questions. Billy withholds the fact that he had accompanied Bill on one of his murders. Mm. But the information he provided led St. John to deduce that Bonin might be the freeway killer. Meanwhile... The police and media work together to get any lead they can, and they give the description of what is happening to these young boys, how they're picked up hitchhiking, how they're bound and raped and discarded. Hmm. And watching from home is David McVicker. Uh-oh. And he's thinking, this is exactly what happened yeah. to me in 1975. Yeah. But my perpetrator, Bill Bonin, he's in jail. 
No. Yeah. He was let out on a clerical error, yeah, that, remember? That's what you think. David McVicker calls the police hotline and says, look it, this is what happened to me in 75, but he go, he went to jail and he's still there. And his name is William Bill Bonin. <laughs> and that's all I have to say about that <laughs> for now. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners. Have you read any good books lately or have you listened to any good books? All of the Sex and Lies series books, as well as the Jane Doe series, are available on Audible and iTunes. Hotter than hell in half of Alabama, the Sex and Lies series begins with Sex, Lies, and Sweet Tea. There are nine books to listen to in that series alone. Left as a newborn to die in a dumpster, she has no name. Tossed from foster home to foster home, she has no family. With no known past, she's deemed a perfect fit for a task force Washington denies exists. A selective assassin for the United States government, Jane Doe tracks down known terrorists on domestic soil. The Jane Doe books have been called a bit military, a bit assassin, and a bit genius. Start the new year by listening to a good book by me, Chris Calvert, on Audible or iTunes. Or if you'd like to read, go to chriscalvert.com and download some free books. And thanks for being a listener of Hitch to Homicide. Well, that was a cliffhanger. No. I know. Wow. Will they or won't they yeah. catch Bill Bonner? You know, I go all the way back to the beginning, you know, 1947 when he was born and his father was obviously in World War II. I wonder if there was any kind of PTSD that his dad was going through, if he was drinking and gambling. I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. He, yeah. I'd like to know when he served and what he served. Well, and... And violence begets yeah, violence. Yeah. You know, they always talk about you have to break that chain. Yep, yep. Uh, and, you know, his father was beating him yeah. and then his brother was beating him. Yeah. And then they went away to escape the abuse and got even more abuse. Right. So, yeah, it's a perfect storm for this guy. Yep. It it really is. And you can see why they think he's just the most evil person. Yeah, he was. Ever. Yep. Ever. Well, Let's go from evil to stupid. Man, I need something good. <laughs> evil to stupid. All let's, right. Uh, let's do a little, well, bless your heart. Well, bless your heart. All right. I'm, I'm going to call this one, smoke them if you got them. <laughs> smoke them if you got them, boys. Yeah. <laughs> Some people can smoke and chill out. Some people get a little paranoid. And others, however rare. Get seriously delusional. Wait a minute. What are we smoking? <laughs> <laughs> well, here it is. I have a feeling this isn't a Marlboro. <laughs> a couple of guys who were smuggling 20 pounds of weed from Las Vegas to Bozeman, Montana, wound up in jail after apparently getting so high that they called 911 to report <laughs> that the cops were following them, according to East Idaho News. <laughs> They politely asked the emergency dispatcher to make those, quote, jack wagon cops stop it. Those jack wagon <laughs> cops? Yeah. They said, um, hi, uh, we're, we're the two dumbasses that got caught trying to bring some stuff through your border. And all your cops are just driving around us like a bunch of jack wagons. And I'd, and I'd just like it for you guys to end it. If you could just help me out with that, we would like to just get on with it. What border is he talking about? I have no idea. Oh, my gosh. The cops were not following the men, but they definitely showed up. Well, yeah. that's one way to get them to follow you. Yeah, but they definitely showed up after the call, during which Leyland 
and I apologize if I mess this name up, Ayala Doliente explained that he had already tried waving down all the cops in the civilian cars, but it wasn't working. He also noted that the men had plenty of snacks and stuffs with them and a pretty friendly pit bull. Jeez. Well, if you're going to smoke weed, yeah. you're going to need snacks. Yep. When the police really did arrive, the two men were standing with their hands behind their heads, ready to surrender. Oh, my God. Their weed, which was hidden inside a garbage bag in a dog carrier, had been neatly placed on the sidewalk. There's the weed. Yeah. Holland Stewart pleaded guilty to possession with intent to deliver and has been sentenced to 30 days in jail and five years of probation. Ayala Doliente was reportedly sentenced to one and a half to eight years in prison. Why did he get more? Well, I guess because he's the dumbass. It's his weed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Reports state that the judge increased his sentence because he tested positive for marijuana, oh. cocaine, and oxycodone on the day of his sentencing. Oh, so not when he's picked up. No, on the day of his sentencing. Yikes, he walked dude. into court with that. Wow. <laughs> yeah, smoke him if you got him. Mm. <laughs> don't think that's like, uh, that's, I don't think that weed is like a mellow high <laughs> yeah. by any stretch yeah. of the imagination. So bless their hearts. Bless his heart. <laughs> well, if you know somebody whose heart needs to be blessed, you can send it to us. Go to hitchtohomicide.com. There's a little pull-down menu. You can also suggest a case. Yep. We're going to do some cases that have been suggested. I can't wait. Yep. Can't wait to do it. Can't wait to do part two of Bill. Because yep. Bill's going to get what's coming to him. Good. So stay tuned for next week. Awesome. That's my amazing husband out there. That's my beautiful bride in the booth. Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide. Bye, y'all.